0: All right. I want you to save the rest of your fellowship for uh, for afterwards. Uh, next Sunday, Ryan Yoho is preaching. And I know um, Phil mentioned before. I'll just reinforce one one service. You're here at the right time for next Sunday. It'll be ten thirty, no eight thirty service next week. Um, but Ryan Yoho will be preaching from Matthew eight five to thirteen. Jesus' encounter with the centurion. Uh, I'll send that out in the email this week as well to remind you, but just want to encourage you if you're meditating on scripture before the services, uh, Matthew 8, 5 through 13. And then in January, we'll start a series of messages on, on what it looks like to live as, as exiles, to, to be um, believers living in a world as, as exiles within it, how that should affect us and, and our influence on the world. And then in February, we'll start through the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. So that's what's coming up. 1965 was the debut of uh, what became a classic over the holidays, Charlie Brown Christmas. And if you remember the story, it begins with a very sad-faced leading character leaning on the wall with Linus and Charlie just bemoaning the fact that I think there's something wrong with me, that I just do not get happy. Christmas is coming and I'm not happy. And he goes on, he says, I like getting presents and I like giving cards and decorating trees, and I'm still not happy. And and, and you remember, you know, Charlie tries to direct the Christmas play, and it doesn't go particularly well, and purchases the Christmas tree, and that doesn't go especially well at all. And, and, And it's at that moment that Charlie Brown reaches this sort of existential crisis when he throws his hands in the air, and he cries out, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And of course, Linus, his friend, comes to his aid and pulls the thumb out of his mouth and says, Yeah. Yeah, he says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. He walks to the center of the stage and he asks for a spotlight. And what does he do? He recites Luke 2, 8 through 14. Glorious passage describing the incarnation of Jesus Christ and a passage that remains one of the most familiar in all of Scripture. Many people if they haven't come to experience it there, they've heard it in children's Christmas plays. These peop- the, these verses are are known and regarded even by people who have very little interest in the reality of Jesus Christ and in his death for sinners. Certainly, this passage is known by many Christians. The challenge, of course, then with such familiar ground is we tend to take it for granted. We, we know the story. We've read it before. We understand the implications of it. We've thought about it. We've seen it in the children's plays and. It gets easy to not pause and be in awe of what is unfolding before us in Luke 2. This is one of the most amazing moments in all of history. It is central to our salvation, the fact that God would come in flesh and enter humanity is, is just one of the most dramatic moments, and I would suggest to you verse 14 is sort of the pinnacle of all this, when the heavenly host of angels cries out at the birth of Jesus, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's really another hymn of praise. We've actually looked at two already in our Advent study and worship the king. We've looked at Mary's Magnificat. We've looked at Zecharias's the, the Benedictus, and so this one today is the, the sort of angel song. It's sometimes referred to as the Gloria or the Gloria in Excelsis Deo. As with each of these, it's the first word out of the speaker's mouth in reciting it. And so Gloria is the thing that comes out of the angel's mouth when they say glory to God in the highest. And so we are in Luke chapter 2. The, the angel's hymn, that verse 14, is... Is sort of the, the pinnacle that we're, we're, we're moving toward in the beginning verses, but, but the reason that is so glorious is because of all that precedes it. It's really seeing the work of God unfold in the verses prior to verse 14 that leads us to this place of praising him and his glory. So I want to focus first on just four things that we see God doing in this passage as it leads us to verse 14, and it's God's providence, God's pattern God's present or or, or gift, and then God's pleasure. So let me read the first six verses just to get us started. Luke 2, let's read 1 through 6. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary his betrothed who was with child and while they were there the time came for her to give birth well, let me pause there couple things. Just first of all, when it says go up, we we typically think go up means you're traveling north. It's go up in the Jewish mind is anything that moves toward Jerusalem, anything that moves toward Judea and particularly Jerusalem, the focal point, Bethlehem is essentially a suburb of Jerusalem. And so the idea that they're traveling four or five days from north to south is still going up because the ultimate goal is to go to, to, to the direction of Jerusalem. They are moving that way. Luke raises some points here that up until probably a couple centuries ago were always just taken for granted as, and, and wisely as we should when we trust the authority of God's word, but it was scholars a couple hundred years ago who began to say, well, I don't know if this census really happened. Quirinius' time as governor doesn't seem to quite match up. Some of the things we do know. We do know Caesar Augustus. Um, Caesar Augustus is given the title of Caesar in 27 BC after he uh, is part of the defeat, leads the defeat really of Mark Antony and and what Caesar does, what what Augustus does at that point by defeating Mark Antony is take what are three regions of of the Roman Republic at that point and now brings them together into the Roman Empire and so this is a, a monumental time. He will rule the Roman Empire for roughly 40 years until about AD 14 the rule of Caesar Augustus is noteworthy in history because it is the establishment not only of the empire, but of peace throughout the empire. His strong leadership is used by God to create what historians call the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And, and it's during this, the 200 years that begin with the 40 years of Caesar Augustus that Rome gets to its largest point geographically and in terms of population. So I I say all that, why why that's important is because by the time we get to the events of Luke 2, Caesar Augustus has been the the ruler uh, for almost three decades at this point, has been on the scene easily for three decades in terms of having great power. So he is a strong ruler. He has great authority at at this point. Caesar Augustus is the one who's brought it all together and and what he says goes to, to the degree that his predecessor, Julius Caesar, is not deified by the Roman Empire till after he dies. It's after he dies that, that, that some decide that he should be treated as a god. Caesar Augustus, in his lifetime, they are worshiping him. It goes all the way back to 29 BC when the first temples started going out in outlying areas in the Roman Empire that were meant to worship Caesar Augustus. So he's the first emperor to not discourage, if not flat out encourage, the worship of himself as a deity. Again, The point being, this is a powerful individual. He is ruling the empire. There's great power and force behind it, but people are are reaping the benefits in terms of the growth of the empire and the stability of the empire, and so he is honored in many ways. The historical debate that comes up from what Luke says about this registration is the question of the timing of the census, not the reality of the census, that these things happened. Caesars would would do these sorts of things to to register for taxation, to take a census. The Jews in particular were targets of these things because they were exempted largely from Roman military service, and so taxation is one place where where they made up for some of that. Um, There's nothing outside of the New Testament that disproves what Luke describes here. There's just not the supporting evidence for it like there is in a later census. And so Acts speaks of another census that comes later, and there is evidence for that in other historical writings that we don't have for this particular one. And there's also some question about Quirinius as being governor over Syria. He officially becomes governor in roughly AD 6, which would mean that this census would have happened probably earlier than he became governor. It's important. To keep in mind two things. One is this sort of census was not unusual. And secondly, Quirinius had governing power over Syria even before he was governor. Just like politicians we think of today who usually have served in some capacity, have had some leadership role and seen as leaders, governors, senators, whatever it is, before they adopt a higher role. And, and, and so Luke, as he's writing this decades down the road after the ministry and death of Christ, is is very likely just referring to Quirinius as governor because that's who they knew him as and not trying to be precise necessarily that he had to be specifically entitled as that at that point. So none of this really brings in anything to bear on the text that should cause us to question it. The, the, the idea that there was a census taken seems to be very much a reality. The, the, the irony of this, the thing that should catch us on all of this is here is the most powerful man in the known world at this point in history, who decides it's time for more tax revenue. See how some things never change, which are still taxes are still an issue and, and, and how to gain more tax revenue. And the most powerful man in the world makes this declaration that begins to uproot and inconvenience the lives of thousands of people who must return to their birth city to be registered and therefore forces Mary and Joseph and the latter part of her pregnancy to have to take this four to five day journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. The reality is Caesar Augustus was doing the will of God. And and, and Luke gives us this as a way of helping us to see God's providence. That is how God superintends. when Ephesians says, he works all things after the counsel of his will. How is it that he accomplishes everything he sets out to do? Well, here's one way. He uses the hand of an evil king, a king who actually desired to be worshipped as if he was God, and he uses the order of that king to take Mary and Joseph and move them over a journey that will get them to Bethlehem so that it will fulfill the promise that was given centuries earlier in Micah 5 that said the Messiah would be born in the city of David, which is Bethlehem. That is, that is powerful to see God's providence even over the hands of evil rulers to, to accomplish his purposes, and that should give us hope. Bishop Ryle, a couple of centuries back, wrote this The heart of a believer should take comfort in recalling God's providential government of the world. A true Christian should never be greatly moved or disquieted by the conduct of the rulers of the earth. He should see with the eye of faith a hand overruling all that they do to the praise and glory of God. The events, The historical events that surround the incarnation of Jesus, the birth of the child, all give evidence to the sovereign providence of God fulfilling his good and wise purposes at precisely the time he ordained, as Galatians describes it, in the fullness of time. At the very time when Mary is to give birth, God is at work through Caesar Augustus, through a man whose only real ambition at that point is expanding the tax rolls, and God is using that for his purposes. And, and so again, for us, elections and court rulings and bills that pass or, or don't pass tend to be things that work us up. They're important. And we should pray for our leaders. We're called to do that and, and pray for the exercise of justice. We should pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we should do so with the knowledge that that all that the politicians and all that the governmental leaders and all that the authorities do is not the last word. It is God who wills and works to accomplish his purpose and who moves the hearts of the kings, just as he did Caesar Augustus. And we should take great hope from this in in seeing again how our God is in control of circumstances. Let me read on, and I'm going to go again from verse 6 and down through verse 12. that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Stop there. Seeing God's work in his superintending providence over the events around the incarnation, the details of Jesus' birth. Now it's, it's his pattern, and God's pattern is humility. The king The great and mighty king is born in the lowliest of circumstances. Think about what Colossians 2 is. It's describing Jesus Christ in Colossians 2.16 and says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Apart from Jesus Christ... There is no Caesar Augustus. There is no Roman Empire. There is no little town of Bethlehem. There is no region of Judah, uh, Judea. God is the, the one who has brought all this to bear through Jesus. All of this through, through the, the, the Son has been brought into existence. Through Jesus, all of these things exist. The earth would not exist apart from Jesus. And yet when Jesus came to earth, there is not a single indoor room for him. The, the, the suffering and the indignity that would be his death on the cross didn't start there. It begins here at his incarnation, at his birth, when he is wrapped in, in cloths that are available to Mary, and he is laid in an animal's feeding trough in what, what most scholars believe was probably something like a cave where animals slept, just sort of a shelter place. And that's, where the king comes in utter humility. And the very first visitors who were summoned to see the king, to witness Jesus, are shepherds. The unrecognized child is first declared to some of the least recognized people in society, those who generally lived out outside of the town and and stayed with their sheep, and people barely knew them or saw them, and they just served a function. And here they they are the ones to whom God appears if you 've ever been up in the district when when a motorcade goes through, some head of state going from like Embassy Row down to the white House and, and, and you have to get somewhere, and all of a sudden a motorcade comes, and you just know it 's wherever you want it to get you 're now late because you know what 's going to happen here, and it 's just motorcycles and black vehicles with flashing lights and you just, everything stops and, and streets are, are blocked and, and you stand there and you watch because that's, that's what happens when, when these dignitaries, when these heads of state pass through. And our world tends to yield to, to powerful leaders. When they pass by, we may be a little annoyed because our schedule's been changed, but we're also a little curious, who is this? Can't really see him, probably never gonna get close to him. It, this head of state is surrounded by a contingent of security and staffers who are, who are ensuring that only the other rich and powerful are going to get anywhere near and get an audience. And so there's always some kind of curiosity. And yet here is the king coming. And, and, and Philippians 2, when it speaks to us about our own practice of humility, it instructs us to not be conceited or selfish, to humbly count others more important than ourselves based on What? The model of Jesus Christ, our King. Have this attitude in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. And and, and Philippians goes on to say, Jesus emptied himself of all of the privileges and prerogatives of being the son of God in heaven and all of the glory that went with it. He set all that aside to then take on the form of a servant and humble himself. And Philippians goes on to say, even to the point of death on the cross. The pattern that God gives to us to follow is demonstrated in the life of Christ from his very incarnation. It is humility. We're called to to live in service to God and to love others and to count others as more significant than ourselves because we are following our Savior. We have learned from our King who sets all of this aside so that he may come and give his life for us and for our sin. The pattern is humility third thing that we see here that God does is his His present or his gift, as the angel describes. In, in verse two, uh, verse 10, I should say, of chapter 2, Luke 2.10, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We think about birth, childbirth, announcements of, of children's birth. That it, that, that child is given to, to a family, specifically to a, a mom and a dad, the, the parents. That, that's who we see that child is given to. And so we don't announce that as, and unto you has been born this child. But but this is so unique in that the angel's declaration is this child to you shepherds is a gift. This child is for you because he is a savior for you. We often when we talk about our exchanging of, of Christmas gifts, we often go back to the Magi who, who come sometime later uh, as Jesus is, is, is still a child. Um, and we see that as sort of the pattern for giving of gifts. But I, I'd submit to you that it starts here in Luke 2.11 with God giving his beloved son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son, his only begotten son. And, and this is it in Luke 2.11. The shepherds had done nothing to earn this. They had no gifts to come, they weren't going to in exchange. Simply God, out of his grace, says, unto you, to you is born today a savior. You are receiving the gift of the single greatest thing in life you could ever possibly need. This is the most satisfying, richest gift you could ever have, it is a savior. Every culture, every generation, has problems distorting the line between wants and needs. We learn that early on, don't we, as children, when we learn that I need sounds a lot better than I want. If, if I see something that I identify in the store and I say I want it, that's not nearly as effective as saying I really need that. That just sounds so much more. Well, our Savior... Our God, our creator, knows what we need, and at the top of that list is this gift because it meets our greatest need, and that is the reconciliation of ourselves to our creator, being made at peace with him. Think back to the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes. He is able to pursue all of his desires. He has the means by which to check out all of the different wants and things that he wants to follow, and at each turn, he keeps trying things, and at each turn, he comes away unsatisfied. And he says, fleeting, vanity, futile. It, th- th- this, is, this seemed so important, and now it's vanishing. And now it's useless to me. It doesn't matter for my soul. It doesn't satisfy for eternity. It's simply fleeting. It wouldn't matter that long. And that's why his conclusion at the end of Ecclesiastes is above all else, fear God. Because he, he's come to the conclusion that being reconciled to God, being made right with his creator, is the single most important thing that he needs. Verse 11 does describe this as a gift to the shepherds, unto you is born this day. But verse 10 also enlarges that when when verse 10 says, the angel said, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This child we've already seen, not just for Mary and Joseph, not just for their family, not even just for the shepherds, The angel has said, this is good news for all the people. That that particular phrase, the people, certainly to the shepherds would have rung of all of your people, all of the the Jewish people, and it's used that way elsewhere in Luke. And so he's, he's now declaring that this is the Messiah who is coming for the people. We know that it's not just that because... He he, he is Israel's consolation, Simeon will say that in Luke 2.25, so he is the Messiah, but it also goes on in Luke 2.32 to make it clear that he is a light to the Gentiles. And so the, the expansion of this is that at the coming of Jesus Christ, God is giving to all of humanity an incomparable gift. He is sending his son to be the Savior and to hold out to them salvation and forgiveness. The child is God's anointed. He is the Christ. He will be the Lord who is ruler of all. This is good news of great joy because light now is overwhelming. Darkness and life is defeating death and truth is defeating lies and holy God is coming in flesh to take away the guilt of sin, that which we rightly deserve. Think about Mary back in her Magnificat, verse 52, when she said, God brings down the mighty from their thrones and exalts those of humble estate. That can happen because of this, because God's gift of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and his, his sacrifice on the cross. So I have to ask, I have to ask here and to, to those online, are you, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone? Have you received this gift of God's grace by turning from your sin, acknowledging that you are a sinner and fully trusting in Jesus Christ, that he did what scripture says, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross taking the punishment and the wrath that you and I deserve for our sin and then rose again to eternal life to defeat sin and death and that he is coming again. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ, God's gift? Think about it, the shepherds. When the angel comes to the shepherds, the angel doesn't say, now wait a minute, you guys. Before you get all anxious here, you need to clean yourselves up because you're a mess. You need to purify yourselves. You need to do all the stuff because you're going into the presence of Jesus. And if you're going to somehow make yourself acceptable to Jesus, you've got to fix yourself up before you go into his presence. That's not what happens. They give him a sign that the angel says, here's the sign. Here's, Here's how you know you will have found him. And verse 16 says they rushed. They made haste to find the baby. My friends, God, God is not commanding you to clean up your life to make yourself presentable in order to somehow win his approval in some way, to earn his approval. If you've been brought up or... or, or Heard from religions that have put an emphasis on your works and your performance. And if, if you just do, 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 and you accomplish all of these things, then maybe you'll have tipped the scales against your sin, and somehow God then will embrace you and accept you because you've done enough good stuff. I'm here to tell you that that scripture is already setting out the, 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 the preliminary steps of the gospel here when it is calling us to run to Jesus. To, to not You can't make yourself presentable. We are sinners. And the only way that our sin is dealt with is by running to Jesus Christ and by his grace being forgiven of that sin. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, then this, this passage again is just another, another reminder of the great joy that we should have at knowing what he has done and that you have been saved from death and destruction. Today is yet another day to to praise God for the gift of salvation. All right, let me read on. Verse 12, again, uh, Luke 2, verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. There's the pinnacle. There's there's what we're getting to is that incredible moment when the angels cry out this this song of praise. But, But let me have you notice one more thing just before we get to the glory part. And that is that last phrase when he says, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. If you remember Linus quoting it, it was the old King James that he was reciting. You remember it as, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. This sounds a little different, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The the challenge with this in the Greek is there are no verbs in this statement, and so our English translations have to work with particles and nouns and adjectives and and, and get it to, to flow in a way that makes sense for us, and so our English translators are trying to make sense of what in the Greek literally is glory in highest to God and on earth peace in men Udokias. Uh, odik, there we go. A good pronunciation of Greek there. I sat there thinking about this earlier because I said it wrong in the first service, and I managed to do it wrong two services in a row. Udokias. <laughs> there we go. Third try. Point of that. So there you go. That's what you get for throwing around Greek. Um, I, I just want you to see that because it's, it's an adjective. It means favored, and what it's doing there is describing the men. They are those who have been favored by the subject who is God. They are those who have received the pleasure of God. They've been given God's divine pleasure. That's what, that's what the angels are speaking of here. Peace upon those who have received the favor of God. The, the male part, peace amongst men, is, is generic, really. It's speaking about people that the, the qualifier is, what, what, what sets them apart, is God's favor. That's what what defines those who receive this peace. Those on whom God has poured out his favor are those who receive his gift of peace. He's already showed his pleasure for the shepherds. Again, not for anything they've done. God just in his kindness has has not done something that they have earned. He has simply showed them favor by calling them to come come to see Jesus, come to see this king. This is God's mercy that light is dawning in darkness and forgiveness is being proclaimed to sinners. This is God's grace. But it's not just in the hearing. It'd be one thing if the shepherds heard the angel and said, "Okay. It's interesting. Let's get back to what we're doing." We've got a story to tell about how the sky lit up and we just kind of left it there. They would have not responded and they would have not embraced what God is holding out to them in terms of his favor. God's favor here is both, and this is a great illustration to us. We often talk about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We're really seeing both play out here in terms of God showing his favor and man responding by running to Jesus. God, in his grace, extending to the shepherds the call and man responding. God chose the shepherds to show them favor. The shepherds, though, still had to follow and obey. They still had to trust in what God had said because that's what he called them to. If you are hearing the gospel, if this is the first time or the hundredth time that you are hearing that Jesus Christ died for you and you must trust in him, you must run to Jesus. You must turn to Jesus. There's no theological consideration here of, of has God favored me? Am I chosen in some way? The fact of the matter is, I'm telling you that what the word of God says is Jesus Christ has died, and if you will run to him and trust him, he will save you. That's what he promises, that those who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. One scholar takes the last part of verse 14 and says this, this remark makes it clear that salvation and its fullness are not automatic for everyone. Only those who respond to God's grace and follow the path lit by the rising sun will experience the peace into which that path leads. Jesus comes for all, but not all respond to and benefit from his coming. This is that that time of year when we hear it from people in the world, we hear it from the Hallmark movies, that there's always this sort of, There's this hunger for Christmas being a time of renewal and fresh starts and joy and love and peace because it speaks to the longing of the human soul that God has created, that there is a desire for peace. There is a desire for knowing what true joy is. But it doesn't come from worldly means or contentment. It comes from trusting in Christ. The deepest peace that you can have is being reconciled with your creator with the Lord of creation, with the master, with the, the, the one that you will stand before who is Judge. When your soul departs from this earth, from your body, you will stand before Almighty God. And if there is one thing in that moment that you will want more than anything else, it is to know that you are at peace with your judge, to know that you can stand before him having been reconciled and your sin forgiven and judged and no holy wrath to face and that peace is yours if you will trust in Christ, if you will turn to Jesus Christ and receive what, what he has done. And if you have, it says you have peace, peace to those on whom God has shown his favor. You have unshakable peace, even in the midst of terrible circumstances. This is one of those times a year that, that brings joy, but it also brings sadness. We, we have loved ones who have, Past or 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 sick and and Christmas just seems to sort of accentuate loss too. It reminds us of some of our griefs as well. And so this is a this is a difficult time of year even for some, and, and pain is real and emotions are real. But if you belong to God, if you are reconciled to your Creator through Jesus Christ, regardless of those circumstances, you know that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You have unshakable peace. And that's what then makes the angels cry all the more wonderful to us. Glory to God in the highest. You need to remember, this is coming from creatures who Peter will tell us in 1 Peter, who long to look into the things of salvation. What Peter is telling us is that angels who have have surrounded God do not even fully grasp the measure of salvation, the depths of salvation. They have seen God work in his grace and how he is rescuing a people for himself. And that idea in 1 Peter is they long to look into these things. It's like they bend over and stoop down to to look inside something to try to understand it better. And here are these heavenly creatures who already understand that God has done an amazing work that is beyond their ability to fathom, and he is worthy of unending praise. And they are just part of delivering to him the glory that he deserves. That night sky, imagine how it lit up for the shepherds as that announcement was declared. Today, salvation has come for you. Glory to God in the highest experience, peace. Verse 20 tells us the shepherds returned after seeing Jesus, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as had been told them. That's, that's what we do here on Sunday morning, right? is we, we receive this truth, and then we echo it back. We echo back, as the shepherds did, they, they saw Jesus, and they couldn't contain themselves. They, they sang His praises and they glorified God based on what they had seen and experienced. For most of us, this is a really busy week. This is a week when your schedule is full. I would dare say that most of you at some point or another in the last 30 or 40 minutes, at some point or another, your mind has drifted off and, and, and you you heard want, want, want going on up here. And you were thinking about, oh, I still got to get this done this afternoon. I still got to get on Amazon and order this. We've, some of you are traveling, some of you are leaving right after the service and you're getting on the road. And some of you have people who are traveling here and, and you're hosting and there's gifts to wrap and meals to prepare and, and all sorts of things to do. And listen, there's nothing wrong with those things. I, I, I echo back to the preacher in Ecclesiastes who says food and drink and, and, and friendships, those are, those are gifts. God has given you that so that you can revel in his goodness to you. And and so take them and, and savor them and give thanks to your creator for how he has supplied these things for you. But don't lose sight of what God has done, of this marvelous work that the angels are celebrating on that night in Bethlehem, how the Son of God leaves the glories of heaven in order to save us, in order to reconcile us and to give us peace by giving himself in our place on the cross. It's it's both, this this should be both that scene that causes us to pause and praise God for that, but it it should also, as believers who have the rest of the New Testament, it should remind us that our Savior is coming again. And, And this time, Matthew will describe it later as lightning flashing across the sky, and he will come in the clouds with Power and great glory, and the audience then will be more than a little group of shepherds. It will be the world, and they will know that something is happening, and we will know that our Savior has come, and He shall reign over all creation, and we will join with the heavenly creatures and the the forefathers who have gone on before us, and we will praise Him. And we will emulate that very scene that the Apostle John glimpsed and he describes in Revelation 5 this way. Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. And I heard every creature in heaven and on our earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, would you join me and let's just say this last part together. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have come this morning to engage with your word, to hear your truth to be impacted by, again, the, the story that we are so familiar with, but also so that we can, we can echo back to you just a, a portion of the glory and worth and majesty that you are due. That King Jesus, we rightly long to give to you for who you are and for what you have done and for the pattern of humility and the gift of salvation that you have brought. We, your people, count it a privilege as we sing here in just a few minutes to to just follow in the steps of the shepherds who went before us, who just couldn't say enough about all that they had seen and witnessed and wanting to give you glory. And and our singing is just a reflection of that, that, that we just can barely say enough to describe our gratitude and your greatness and the majesty of your coming And how you have saved unworthy sinners and given us life and light and peace. Father, I pray if there's anyone listening that has not trusted in Jesus Christ, still struggling with this hope and this joy, they, they lack it, they don't know if they're right with you. Father, I pray that today your spirit would do the work that only your spirit could do to open their eyes to cause them to see Jesus, not just as some historical figure, not just as a a pivot point during this particular week, but as the savior that he was sent to be as the one who died and rose again to give life and forgiveness and peace to all who will trust in him. Lord, thank you. Thank you, your people. We, We thank you for peace. We thank you that in a world that is so chaotic with all of the, the difficult circumstances that, that the brothers and sisters here would face even in this coming week. Some are, some are moving into to family situations for the holidays where there is conflict or strife or pressure. Father, I pray that you would remind us again and again that we have peace with our Creator. We can, we can live differently. We can be sacrificial. We can love and serve others because we have been reconciled to our Creator. And we have the, the joy and the hope Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.